Are you familiar uh, with the aftermath of David and Goliath in relation to what happened with Saul? So many of you know the story of David and Goliath. Um, the Israelites are terrified and trembling. Uh, who's going to fight for us? And some little shepherd boy goes out there and kills a giant, right? And Saul promises, if you remember, he promises a reward. He promises uh, lots of wealth, and he promises uh, his daughter to be married. You get married the king's daughter, so it's pretty good. Um, and David, of course, uh, kills the giant. He is spoiled with riches and a daughter to marry. And obviously, no, everyone is happy. Well, on the way back from this victory, maybe you didn't know this, maybe you do remember, in 1 Samuel 18, as Saul and David are coming home, and the, so they just, they just won. Everyone's happy. David, we won. We killed the, we, we beat the Philistines. We finally won, right? They're on the way back, and in 1 Samuel 18, the women run out of the town to meet David and Saul. And they're happy because, well, they won, right? They should be happy. And the women at verse 7 in 1 Samuel 18 says this, And the women, the women sang to one another as they celebrate. So they're singing. So this is their theme song, right? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Interesting. So, Saul, you're great. But man, that David, he kicked some butt out there, Right? That's, that's, not, that, that's not in Hebrew, I don't think, but that's what it's saying, right? And then listen to what happened next, verse 8. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousand, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So this is what we call envy, right? They're happy. Even Saul's happy. Like he, We won. Great. But David looks better. And Saul is, we say, green with envy, right? It's from Shakespeare. He's green. It's this anger, this lurking monster of envy that leaps out of Saul, right? And from that day on, he eyes David. He just always looks at him with anger. And I can't stand that guy, David, right? That's, that's envy. Envy is a monstrous desire. It's, it's gross. Um, we may not have envy about our neighbors slaying thousands of people. Uh, I hope you don't. Not when you need to maybe report to the police. But we do experience envy. All of us do. Typically what happens is you have a very <clears throat> restful vacation. You go to the beach. You have a lot of fun. Either on vacation or when you get home, what do you do? Well, you check Facebook and what do you see? <sighs> they went to Rome again? Are you being serious? Yes, that person, I know who you're, who you're thinking of, that one. They always have a better vacation than you do. Their, their car is so much better than your car. And you just got a new one. Their car is so much better. Facebook makes it very clear. Yeah, your, your children did some really cool things, but what their son just did eclipsed everything your son just did. And all your joy is sucked away, isn't it? You're not even happy anymore. You're angry, Right? What's funny is I know you guys are all like this because I'm just like this. This is what has this, this is legit. This is what we jerk. I can't stand that guy now, right? That's what we do. Envy is deathly serious, right? In Galatians chapter five, envy is listed among serious sins and, and a vice list we call them. It's listed among things like sorcery, anger, and drunkenness. So envy is pretty serious. 
First Corinthians 13 says love does not envy. So therefore, if you're being envious, you're not being loving, you're being hateful, sinful, right? First Peter 2 says to put away envy. Titus chapter 3 says envy is supposed to be part of your former way of life. So what is envy? Why is it so serious? What is the cure? All right, that's what we're going to kind of look at today. I'll give you the answer. That way, in case you don't remember it, you have it, you'll have it at least twice. But here's the answer. Here's the cure to envy. The cure to envy is to be so happy and satisfied in God that he quenches all of your desires by being your desire. Maybe a different way. When Christ is prized, envy dies. It's pretty simple. So if you treasure Christ, envy will die. We realize that Jesus is superior, he's better, he's lasting. Envy will have no more room in your heart. And that's why Psalm 73 is so good and so rich. So let's look at, it's written by a man named Asaph. Let's read. This is basically an account of what Asaph walks through. And I think if you walk through it with me, you'll realize that I'm just like Asaph. I, I, I need the cure Asaph finds. So look, let's look at verses 1 through 3. First, let's look at the truth. Verse, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So first, the psalmist starts with, Pretty good news, right? This is good news. God is good. Cool. So far, I love this psalm. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, right? Uh, amen. The original meaning of our, so of our English word good is an Anglo-Saxon word, right? Good. The original, uh, the word God literally means the good in, in, in our English word. So God is the good. The good is God, right? So God is the highest good. He is supremely good. He is the chief good. Uh, God is the standard of what good is. Wayne Grudem writes this. God is the final standard of good, and all that God is and does is worthy of approval. That's what, for, that's what it means for God to be good. Psalm 145 says the Lord is good to all. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said that no one is good except God alone. He is infinitely good, unchangeably good, and perfectly good. And then, of course, the Israelites, they know this, right? They know God's good. They, they know their history. They know they've been delivered. They have showers of blessings. They've seen great power, great works. I mean, they, no one else gets the law. No one else gets manna from heaven. But, they, I mean, they get these things. They know God's good, right? This is like, this is a creedal statement. Truly, God is good. We know this. This is a verse worth imprinting on your heart. Now, there's a vast difference between this. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've read, you're reading ingredients and you read, or you're reading something on the page and it says, honey is good. Yeah, honey's pretty good. It's a big difference between reading that honey is good and tasting that honey is good. And if you're a Christian, you know the difference. You can read all day that God is good and you can, yeah, he's good. But if you're a believer, you know it. You've tasted it, right? You've literally, I know he's good. I know who he is. I know him. He knows me, right? Ephesians chapter 1 says that in Christ you have holiness, adoption, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit as a deposit, and you reign with Christ. Romans chapter 8, among other things, says you have no condemnation. You have Jesus and the Holy Spirit both interceding for you, and the Father works all things for your good. 1 Peter chapter 1 says you have the new birth. You have an unfading inheritance in heaven. You, you will be preserved until you get to heaven, so you can enjoy it forever. That sounds pretty good. But, look at verses 2 and 3. What does Asaph think? 
oh no, <laughs> there's, there's, I have a problem here, right? What does he see? He sees the prosperity of the wicked. He says his feet almost stumble. This, this doubting thought, right? This, well, um, I know God's really good, but how come that wicked person has a really good life? Well, that's not very, that doesn't really make any sense. I thought God was good to Israel. He's, he's good to that guy too. Just a quick lesson here. We need to know that our eyes, our physical eyes that we go to the doctor to get checked on, we have contacts with and glasses with, these are very poor interpreters of truth. What they see is oftentimes very wrong. Instead, we need to be informed. Um, our minds need to be informing our eyes, and your mind needs to be informed by the Scripture. So what you see is often not true. You need your, your Bible to inform you to what you see. And Asa was standing on this, but he began to slip, right? He knows that God is good, but look, look at what happens. Look what he says. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is envy? Amongst other things, envy is this. Here's a good definition I got for you. Envy is, is not for me, so if you like it, good job. It's not me. Envy is a feeling of unhappiness at the blessing and fortune of others. And like many sins in the Christian life, and in life in general, uh, most sins come like a pack of wolves. They don't usually come alone, right? Usually when you're prideful, you have four other things going on at once, right? Anger, self-centered, ambitious, hatred. Like it's, They don't come just by themselves, right? Envy is very similar. Envy has bitterness. It's, you have a resentfulness towards them or you get angry, right? And envy and jealousy are similar, but they're different. They're cousins, but they're, they are different, though. Envy is the desire to have for yourself what rightfully belongs to someone else. Let me give you an example. It's kind of uh, blunt, but I think you'll understand. Uh, envy is when a husband wants another man's wife. Jealousy is when he doesn't want his wife to go to anybody else. See the difference? Envy is when you want something that's not yours. Jealousy is when, well, this already belongs to me. I don't want it to go anywhere else, okay? Jealousy, towards what, jealousy is towards what we already possess. Envy is towards what your neighbor possesses. Jealousy can be good, right? The Bible says that God is what? Jealous. It's good. Envy is never that way. Envy is wicked. It's always evil. Envy comes with resentment, as I said, anger, and it hope you have you have a hope that some will have a misfortune at time. I hope that trip stinks, right? Hope you get a flat tire. Envy then questions God's goodness, questions God's plans, and questions God's ruling the world. Proverbs 14 says this very, very bluntly in a helpful way. Envy rots the bones. It's pretty good. Envy says things like this. What about me? Why not me? My children are like this. Their children are way better off. Or our vacation, like I said, was like this. But they not only take better ones, they took another vacation. Hope they get bit by a crab. I worked really hard for my job. Just fell into their lap. Being serious? It's not fair. That's envy, right? That's envy. It's gross. Now here's the confusion. Look at verses 4 through 12. This is, this is just a, a bullet list. I'll just give you, I'm, I'm not going to read every one. We're going to hit a couple in a row. But if you, re, if you heard the reading, you, 
get the sense that it's pretty clear what's happening, what Asaph sees. He's, he's going to point out what he sees so he knows God is good, but this is what he sees, right? Look, at, This is the problem. Look at verse 4. No pangs till death. So these people have a very pampered life. It's cushy, it's easy. From the womb to the tomb, nothing. It's pretty easy, right? Uh, a golden pacifier and a golden toilet. What a rough life, right? All their life is pain-free. Verse 5. Uh, they're elite both in their wallets and the world. Nothing happens to them. In fact, they seem to be carefree. Healthy, educated families, good vacations, everything good. Uh, verse 7, whatever they see, they have. Uh, their eyes are fat like they see it, they get it, right? There's no restraint. They just get it, right? Always gaining, never staying. Verse 8, now we see their character. So they're not holy people. They scoff. They speak with malice. They threaten. They're Cruel, right? They're scoffers. They're unbelievers, and they're living it up, right? Verse 9, they even blaspheme with their mouths, so they speak against God either in speech or in life. So they're not just, oh, yeah, I mean, they're okay. They're kind of bad people. No, no, these people, they're, they're arrogant. They know they're wicked, and they don't care. They don't fear God. The gates of heaven don't seem very shiny because they have shiny things. Verse 10, they, they, they're, they're popular, that they have a following. People take notice, whether it's believers or unbelievers, you know, both probably. But people look at them and go, hey, look at that guy. I, I want to be like him. And even believers think, man, I, he's kind of living it up over there, right? Verse 11, it gets worse, amps up. Now we see they live in absolute rebellion towards God. Now this could be either apathy towards God, so like, yeah, I just don't have time for church. I don't really care about it. Or it's just, no, Christianity is just dumb, and I just don't have any time, and I don't want to dedicate to it. Either way, there's bluntness, right? It's pretty serious. There's no love for Christ. They have great pride and possessions. <clears throat> Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6, you cannot serve two masters uh, that's a fact, not a challenge, right? Jesus didn't say, give it a shot, right? He's saying, you can't, right? And they're making it very clear they don't. They have one master, and they're wicked, and they love their money, and they don't care about anybody else. So think about it. Would one desire to taste heaven fill your stomach if you're already filled with the earth below? This is what the picture Asaph is painting. These people are filled with the earth. Why do they want to eat heaven? They're full. They don't want anything else, Right? If they were a plane, they couldn't fly upward. They're tethered to the ground. They're not going anywhere. They're grounded. They don't care what's up above. They're stuck, right? They don't want to go up. They want to stay down. Riches are, riches and money tend to blind and distort reality. Now, remember, money is not evil, right? We need to be very clear here. First Timothy chapter 6 does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. So the difference there. Money's not evil. Money's good. Just stinks to have it, <laughs> right? So the love of money is the problem, not just money, right? So Jesus said you cannot love God and money because you can only love one. It's either Christ or cash, right? There's only one option. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease that they increase in riches. And Asaph's just saying, are you serious? They're always at ease, and they just keep patting their little wallets. No problems, no restraints, no pain, no limits. They are much better off than Christians. Perhaps you feel this way. 
Because often what, what happens is, is what do we do? Well, if you're like me, what's prone to happen is at times you pair up two things that must be true. Earthly blessings with God's favor. Don't you do that? Well, look at their life. God obviously likes them. Oh, he likes me. Don't you do that? If you do, you're a little liar because I do that all the time. I go, man, what did I do wrong? Right? It's not fair. The disciples actually thought the same way. You should be relieved by that. They thought the same way. Matthew 19 uh, this discussion happens. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen to the disciples. They act just like us. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, who then can be saved? So do you hear what they're saying? So you're saying this guy who's got it made in the shade, has all this stuff, you're saying it's going to be hard for him to go, to go to heaven? Isn't that a sign of favor? What do you mean it's hard? Do you see what the disciples are thinking? They're, they're pairing up just like we do, God's favor with earthly fortune, right? We long for a life like this. And in doing so, we find that we are idolaters. That yes, we do love God, but we really love things that he can give us. As a matter of fact, sometimes I love him so he can give me more. Maybe if I obey more, he will give me more. Yes, I know God is good, but he never gave me a Mercedes. I, I know that he's good, but for crying out loud, how come they get that? So envy then questions God's purposes and his providence. All of a sudden now we're a doubter. Well, I guess God's not really good. <laughs> I guess I'm just bad, right? But have you considered one of God's purposes in this? I wonder if you consider that one of God's desires in this situation, which perhaps you have this one today, weekly, yearly, month, whatever, one of God's desires is to position you around things like that, people like that, times like this, on purpose, so that God could reveal to you the ugliness of your heart. Have you considered that? That that's a gift. So you can have these things well up inside you and go, I really need the gospel. I'm really not that pure in heart. I have crooked desire. I want stuff. What's wrong with me? Have you considered that? Many of you have gone to the doctor. I hate the doctor. I like being pricked. I like being touched. I feel fine. If it's bleeding, I'll go. If it's really bad, I'll, I'll be all right probably. If I need stitches, I'll probably think about it. Doctors are not fun. However, a good doctor will tell you your condition no matter how shocking. And the best thing is they don't really care what you think about it. Hey, it's, uh, it's pretty serious. You're probably going to die. Well, that's not pretty good news. It's not really my job. If I didn't tell you about it, I would be a bad doctor. If the doctor lied to you, didn't tell you your problem, that'd be a bad doctor, right? How much more true is it with the great physician? It would be cruel if God never revealed to you the depths of your heart, wouldn't it? Aren't you glad that you know that I really am sick with sin? I really need the gospel. I really need Christ. One writer says this, How much of hell is there in the temper of an envious man? The happiness of another is his misery. The good of another is his affliction. He, the envious man, looks upon the virtue of another with an evil eye. Just like Saul, right? I can't stand that guy. They got 
blessings and a good life and their kids are happy and they have good things happen to me, you look at them and you think, oh, I can't stand that jerk, right? It's cruel. Envy forgets our own sinfulness and what we truly deserve from God. What's well, not fair? What would be really fair is if God were to just zap me out of existence, but he doesn't. So it forgets God's goodness and it thinks we deserve something other than what God has given us. So, brothers and sisters, many of us, if you're like me, I want you to remember, we're very quick to confess like serious sins like lust or anger or greed, right? We don't really talk about being envious. But I hope you're seeing that this is, this is serious. Like me, I have this problem. This is serious. So maybe be quick to confess envy and that God would remedy it for us. Look at Asa's reaction in verse 13. So he sees these things, and what, is, uh, what does Asa do? One of my favorite things about the Psalms is they are very, very honest about the human condition. Matter of fact, they often tell you how you're supposed to feel. So we, we let our hearts just arise with emotion, think, and do what we want. And well, it's your heart, you just feel a certain way. Well, the Bible actually says that God is supposed to tell you how to feel. He has command over your emotions. <clears throat> and Asaph tells you how he's feeling, so you can go, oh yeah, that's just like me. So look at verse 13. What does Asaph do? All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You know what that is? It's pity, right? Woe is me. I've been obedient for nothing. I hope you guys understand that I do think this is funny. Woe is me. But it's serious. I mean, this is... This is how I act. I, these thoughts come through my head. This is what Asaph's doing. Being a Christian at one point feels useless. Why am I being obedient? Why am I putting my sin to death? Why am I praying? Where's my treasure? Where's my joy? Where's my pain-free life? Where's my glory? The slipping that he's feeling is it's envy. He's looking at another prospering and he's falling, right? We're, we're, we're like a chameleon. We just look at ourselves prospering. We just change color. All of a sudden, we're angry now. We're happy now. We just change, right? Just like that. Look at, look at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. And now in verse 13, he's like, this is all for nothing. He just, I mean, this 12 verses, he just changed, right? From praising God to forgetting God. Contentment has left the building, right? Asaph now is occupied with self-absorption and self-pity. How many times do you see the prosperity of the wicked and yet you think, man, I'm just in this pit again? We are prone to think of God transactionally, meaning what we do is we put obedience. This is what we think. If I put obedience in, I get blessing out. This is how it works, right? But God is not going to be manipulated by what I do. I can't just figure him out like that and put him into a math problem and it works every time. It's not how this works. Ironically, this is what Satan accused Job of. Do you remember that? What did Satan say to Job? Or to God, I'm sorry. Well, you just bless him. He likes you because you just bless him all the time. I worship you too. That's what I got, right? And what does he say? Take his stuff then, right? Isn't it shocking that our hearts act like Satan? It's shocking, right? We need to be informed. This is not correct. Right? Our sinful hearts have satanic depths to them. 
Look at verses 14 and 15. Asa even records that he himself is continually stricken and rebuked, right? Probably just facing uh, basic trials in life, suffering, pain, those sort of things. And he's keeping quiet because he, he, I don't want my, my brothers to be led astray about my problems. I'm not going to tell them, right? That's, that's what he's saying. This is why we need our hearts to be bathed in the scriptures. We need to read and be taught faithfully because this one day is going to happen to you. What's going to happen is one day you're going to know people who are wicked, who are unbelievers, who are not Christians, who have wealth. They have no pangs till death. And you're going to realize that you have another problem with your car. Your kid is sick again. Your health is going down. And they got no problems. And boy, does that not seem very fair. No pains till death. And what does your heart want to do? Well, like me, it says, well, where is God now? Doesn't seem very right. According to the Bible, God's children actually are meant to find God's hand and his love in and through pain. Did you know that? It's countercultural, and it's against how we're supposed to think. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 5 says this. I want to read you a couple of texts I think you'll be very encouraged by. So Asaph's saying, well, they have no pain. I get pain every single day. I got problems and affliction. And What to do about this? This is what the book of Hebrews says. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastise every son whom he receives. Listen to this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Speaking of our, our earthly fathers. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Last verse, this is key. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen. <laughs> but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here we actually find God's love and God's goodness towards you is in that he wounds you. Right? When you discipline your children or when you've been disciplined, yes, as parents or as children being disciplined, we sin in giving discipline. We always do. But you know that your parent disciplined you because they loved you. Don't run to the parking lot like that. Do you know what cars are, right? Don't you think that? Don't, don't put your finger in the blender. Well, why? It's a blender, right? It's not very easy. Why do I get spanked for that for? It's painful, right? It's not pleasant, but the point is to coach you, to lead you to, the, to right living, right? This is what the Lord is doing. Are you familiar with what geodes are? I had to look up what they're called. You know what geodes are? It's those rocks that people like, you know, they split in half. Open. Oh, these beautiful, like shiny things. Like, I know what they were called. I just typed in rocks shiny and it came up. So geodes, what they're called. There's nothing attractive about a rock. I know some of you guys had pet rocks as a kid. I don't understand that. Nothing attractive about them. There's rocks, right? But on the inside, these things are beautiful. It's within them. There's color and precious gems. Right? This is kind of how God's discipline is. On the outside, it's like it's just it's not pleasant. It's, just, it's a rock. It's, I don't. This is 
I don't like this. But on the inside, there's more worth than we could understand, right? Look at verse 16 17. He's finding this out. He doesn't understand what God is doing. He needs a new perspective. So what does he do? Well, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. So he goes to God. He finally understands. So instead of just moaning and complaining and giving a human perspective, Asaph goes to God. We need to do the same. When we have these situations, we shouldn't just wonder and complain and muse on it. We should go to get better perspective, namely God's perspective. We must take our complaints and our sorrows to the Lord. We must humbly accept that we know pretty much nothing in the world. And instead, we must go to the Word, the sanctuary of God, God's presence. Right? We need to go to the Word, the Word and prayer. Asaph found relief when he went to God. What does he do? Well, he discerns there and he gets truth. He finally understands, right? He gets godly perspective that his eyes don't give him, right? He needs to be told the truth instead of just looking at it, right? We must adopt this practice. The, the, the news, uh, I'm sorry, the command of this text is telling you to doubt yourself. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your heart. Your heart's wrong. Don't listen to it. Don't trust your eyes. Go to the scriptures. Take up and read, right? Do you know the difference between a tornado tracker and a hurricane tracker? Kale, obviously not. Good, that's why I'm here. Tornado trackers, when they track a tornado, they go from the ground, which is suicide, literally. They're hoping to throw their things in it so the things get sucked up, right? They're dangerous. Uh, when you track a hurricane, you, you, you actually track it from above. You can, I mean, we see them on the map, right? Like a radar, you see a big hurricane. We can see it from above, so you're safe. You can actually see where it's going to go and kind of direct it more, right? Well, they're getting a better perspective. So we need a heavenly, above perspective of the world and not an earthly perspective like people on the ground. It's kind of silly, but I hope it makes sense. Things are not what they seem, so we need God's perspective, right? Look at verse 18 through 22. We get truth. This is what's going to happen to the wicked. This is what Asaph learns. He discerns their end. God put them in slippery places by his appointment, right? God has done this. He sets them up, right? God's purposes are indeed mysterious. He doesn't set his friends in these places, but he sets his foes on icy steps. In love, God has not set you where they are. Their paths may be smoother, but they will slip. Our path may be rough, but it is firm. Like standing on a wet rock when you're crossing the creek, you're going to slip. That's what Asaph is saying is going to happen to the wicked people. They're going to fall. It is not smooth. It is not safe ground. They're compared to a dream. Look at verse 20. It's like one day it's here. All of a sudden, just God seems to wake up. And what happens? They're just gone. Vanished, right? Like a phantom, like a dream forgotten heaven straightens out all the crooked things asap you notice he almost slipped so he didn't fall but he almost slipped right he didn't collapse but here the wicked will fall god's justice will judge right wicked prosper on earth but they will perish in hell the unfolding of god's purposes will take place so we need one side of God to soothe our doubts. Asaph just looked to God. All of a sudden, he changed because he looked to the Word, right? Thomas Watson writes this, The godly man has all his best things yet to come. The wicked man has all his worst things yet to come. As their way is different, so is their end. 
So look how Asaph feels. Look at verses 21 and 22. How does Asaph feel now? He feels repentant, right? What, what's he saying? I was acting like a beast, like an unruly animal. God, I am so sorry. I acted like an I was just growling, just angry. We turn like an animal when, when we act apart from faith. We just act dumb. I do that when I doubt God. I don't act. I don't reason. I just react, and it's usually wrong. Ace is saying, I've been acting like an animal, just foolish. His heart changes greatly, right? He's mourning to God. He's confessing to God. This is what repentance looks like, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you know what the streets in heaven are made out of? Gold, right? So today on earth, when you walk around, you see things you envy. Do you ever envy people's sidewalk? Man, look at that sidewalk. Woo, what a concrete slab. No. Why? Because you just walk on it. The things we envy, you're going to walk on them. Do you understand that? We envy just the, the silliest things. Gold is going to be as common as concrete in heaven. That's just what it is. And we envy those things. How foolish are we to covet heavenly concrete? So when you consider that God has not given you to wealth, because if he gave you to wealth, you would probably fall. So therefore, the Bible says that you need to have a very different perspective. Consider this. This is going to be a shocking statement. I hope you understand that it's meant to be shocking. As a Christian, you should pity rich people who are not Christians. I mean it. You should not be angry at them. You should pity them. This is as close to heaven as they will get. Do you have compassion for them? I sure don't. I get mad. Yeah, rough life, get divorced, making $18 million, poor thing. You should pity them. God has not given you that life because you would fall away. You would never come to him. You would never love Christ. You would love money just like they do. So consider that God is not giving you that because he loves you. So what about us as we end? This is the, this is the best part of the whole text is this ending, ending right here. Verse 23 and 28. This is our treasure. You look at all these things. You look to Christ and you see, this is what I have. Nevertheless, and all, all that's true. I just said, all that's true. Nevertheless, verse 23, I am continually with you. We may stray, but we are continually with Christ. To know God is surpassing all earthly treasure. His grip upon us is worth more than all riches because Jesus has secured me to have him forever. Do you, do, you, do you know that? Our heart's desire is to be with Christ. He is the apex of glory. Despite the fact that we wander, I am continually with you. He doesn't leave you. Verse 23, you hold my right hand. Why didn't Asa finally fall? Because God held his hand. If you're a Christian, count it joy that Jesus Christ holds you firm because of his blood shed for you. Um, maybe you've held your, like, uh, uh, your son or daughter or nephew or whatever um, in the beach. You hold their hand. The waves come. What do they, what do they always do when, when they're little? Whoa! They wash away, right? They like, get carried away. What's your grip do? I got you. Come back. You're not going anywhere, right? They jump the wave because you jumped it for them, right? That's what God's grip on you does. It sustains you. It keeps you, right? 
You will not utterly fall because God has his sovereign grip upon you. Verse 24, he guides you to glory. The wicked are wandering blindly. You are being guided by a sure God, a faithful God. Heaven will make amends for everything. What you forsook here on earth will be infinitely rewarded and redone more in heaven. We are not wandering to heaven aimlessly. We are being guided to glory. So you must bind yourself to this book. Bank your life on it. J.C. Ryle said that the Christian life is set up in this way. Grace by the way, glory at the end. That's a good one. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing I desire beside you. I want to close with this last few sentences in this hymn. Jesus Christ is your treasure. If you could go to heaven and Christ were not there... Heaven would be like hell. You would not want to go. If I go to heaven without Christ, I would not want to go. It's only heaven because Christ is there, because God is there. He is our joy. He's our glory. He's our love. We're made for him. On earth I have nothing if I don't have Christ. Heaven cannot contain his majesty. The angels sing of him. The Father looks at him. All of heaven is focused on Christ, and on earth I must be living the same. He is my portion forever. It is good to be near God, verse 28 says. It's good. Let me read you this hymn. Gladly would I leave behind me all the pleasure I have known to pursue surpassing treasures at the throne of God the Son, worthy of unending worship, love, and loveliness, is he. Let's pray.